Good morning again. Most of us remember where we were on September 11th. That is if uh, we were old enough when we, to remember the, the tragedy. There was one person that I just read an account that she gave where she got the phone call and she was notified that her husband was on one of those tragic flights. And her testimony was that she, she basically crumbled to the floor, spent the rest of the day alone, and very difficult to cope with what was becoming reality. She was interviewed some three years after that day, and she made an amazing statement. That's what captured my attention. She said, she referred back to the first year where God really used family and friends and church to, to just help her uh, come to grips with, with reality. And she said this amazing thing in an interview several years later. She said, I struggle with living with grief and hope combined. She said, there are days where anxiety creeps in and... I am so tempted to just stop and say, poor me, and just murmur and complain and whine. But at that moment, she said, I stop and I, ch I choose to say, I am blessed. End of quote. So in my words, it's like, it's another spirit. It's a different spirit that she chose to listen to. So the three words that I'd like to uh, look at this morning is grumbling, gratitude, and grace. And hopefully we can make the connection in that story. So she had to choose between grumbling and gratitude, and for her to make the right choice, there was definitely an amount of grace. And that's what I would like to uh, somehow highlight as we get to the end. So we have three Gs. I guess we don't have quite the speed for four G, so we're going with three Gs. Grumbling, gratitude, and grace. And I would like to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. That's where I'm going to get most of my thoughts from. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I do plan to uh, have a few of the scriptures come up on the screen, but uh, it would be great if you have your Bible. Turn to this wonderful passage. Follow along. It is a history lesson. Paul gave it to the Corinth church. It, is, it obviously was for a specific reason. Uh, apparently there was uh, some attitudes that were not proper at Corinth. And in my own life, I think it is very applicable for me today. So I think it's a very necessary subject for us. I plan to go through the, the text verse by verse, not necessarily read uh, the entire passage, but I'm going to read the verse, make a few comments, and so on. So join me at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under this cloud and all passed through the sea. So let me stop there and just get the context. What Paul is saying, number one, is I don't want the church to be ignorant or unaware. In other words, remember this. And then he says, our fathers... And he's referring to Israel. He's, re he's definitely referring to a historical account. 
and spiritual fathers, if you will, he said, our fathers passed under the cloud and passed through the sea. So what he's saying is just remember the fact that the children of Israel were led by that cloud. And I just uh, pondered that for a bit in my studies and looked at some imagery and pictures that tried to portray. It's impossible to do that. But imagine what it would have been like to be led by a pillar of a cloud. That pillar of a cloud guided God's people day after day after day. And that pillar of cloud signified God's guidance, it signified God's presence, and it signified God's protection. That's beautiful. And then at night it turned to a pillar of fire. And imagine what that would have been like. It seems to me that that would be enough for somebody to live in victory all the time, right? If you had a pillar of fire every day taking you, that would be enough to live in victory. Well, we're going to get through the text and we're going to see that wasn't the case. We know that wasn't the case, but uh, that, not only that fact, but also the fact that they passed through the sea. And if you were one of those that came to the brink of a Red Sea and impossible crossing ahead of you and a furious Egyptian army behind you, and you saw the waters part, and you were one of those that walked through on dry ground, and maybe on your way, uh, uh, just for curiosity, slapped the water wall on the side, and then this side, and would that be enough to convince you of God and keep you faithful? Paul's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of our fathers that were under the cloud and through the sea, and they were delivered. Verse 2, and we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So I think what Paul is, is referring to there is, it's, it's just simply a reference to their identification. In other words, the whole group was in. They were marked clearly, and it says unto Moses. Baptism does carry a significant identification, if you will. You're identified as a child of God and, the, and, and uh, part of the kingdom. And here it says that, that they were baptized unto Moses, and I think it just uh, talked about their identity and unity under Moses' leadership, in other words, under God. It's a beautiful picture. So we're getting a context that kind of is getting us excited. We're reminded how they had manna that was provided supernaturally, and also same spiritual drink, and that was water. Now, of course, they didn't receive the food that they wanted to, but it was some kind of wafers. Uh, we don't really know much about manna, but it was some kind of a simple wafer. And one thing we do know that if they collected too much of it, the next day it would spoil. Actually, it bred worms and stank. So they were told to go out every day and get their manna, which we can get some lessons from. And then on the sixth day, which is very interesting how God wove a principle into this, on the sixth day they were to get enough for two days, and of course the, it did not uh, spoil, it did not breed worms, or it had no stench on their rest day. And the water, we could stop and talk about that uh, supernaturally supplied water in the middle of the desert, and it says that rock was Christ, and we can draw so much from that as well, but we can, we can know that Jesus Christ was present in the Old Testament. 
So one, verses 1 through 4 kind of gives, give us a context of an exciting journey that God's people are on. And God's fingerprints are all over this journey. And God delivered the, his people, and they were en route to a promised land. Now, some people make the analogy of the promised land being heaven. I don't think it's quite fair. I think there's some uh, safe analogies with that. But uh, the promised land, in their case, had some giants and had some difficulties. In our case, uh, it does not, we don't look forward, we don't expect giants and difficulties in the promised land. But they were en route to a, a a promised place that God had for them. And it is just an exciting story where God is present, God is providing, God is protecting. This is good. It's great. It's all about God. Verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's a sad commentary and such a stark contrast to verses 1 through 4, but I hope you can see yourself in the story because I certainly can see myself in the story. And it says that, that many were overthrown, and a lot of translations will say that that has the idea of carcasses were strewn along the way. And I never really thought of this before, but you do some statistics, there are 2 million people that left Egypt, approximately. It's assumed that it was 2 million plus. And we know that only two adults survived and went into the promised land because of their behavior. And you start thinking about deaths per day. 2 million divided by 40, 40 years, divide that by 365, you have 136.98 per day. Imagine that. Now, we know there were some days where 1,000 were killed and 23,000. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But on an average, you have 136 per day. And I don't know what that is there for, but they were, God was not well pleased with many of them, and there were carcasses, or they were overthrown in the wilderness all along the way. I guess it's a vivid lesson to anyone, any self-confident person, uh, that it's in there for the text, in the text to speak to us. Verse 6, it says, Now these things were an example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So in other words, this is an object lesson. They did this, and now he springs from verse 6 saying this is an object lesson to four points. And they all start with neither. So there's four examples, four warnings, four points about their behavior that God was not well pleased. The first one, it says in verse 7, Neither be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down and to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, idolatry is simply whenever, when something gets between you and me and Christ, and it gets in the way, and maybe God even gets replaced. In this case, case in point, was the golden calf incident, which you can read about in Exodus 32. That's when Moses went up to Sinai to, to receive the law, and the people were a little disappointed at his delay, and they said, well, let's make us gods. And do you, can you believe the audacity that they actually got together and made a golden calf, and then they said, let's worship this golden calf, and because this is the God that brought us out of Egypt after the pillar, after the Red Sea. Idolatry in its purest form. They, they had that 
terrible day where they rose up and ate and drank and, and rose up to play, probably some kind of revelry that was replicated after some of the heathen uh, worship practices. But God's just saying in this text, don't do it. Don't do it. And that's a point of its own. But for the sake of the context, don't be idolaters. And I believe that we all can say that idolatry is a struggle for every one of us. We uh, have many idols that can replace God. We place him in the highest place we heard this morning through song. Praise God. Verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. So it says don't be fornicators or sexually immoral. It was a problem in the wilderness. And it was a problem in Corinth. And it, was, it is a problem in our day. And it's tucked in this text to say, God was not pleased with them, and I think it's a, a warning to us to be, to be uh, striving for purity, not only of action, but of, of, of mind. And then it says that, that in one day, three and 20,000 fell. And I, I never really, I, I didn't connect the account to, to that text, so I went back to Numbers uh, numbers 25, gives, that gives you that horrible account where the heathen women of the day were inviting the men and saying, come, let us, let's have, let's, uh, let's worship. And they had their worship services that ended up in sexual immorality. And it was so bad, God was so upset, God was judging his people. It was a terrible plague came over it. And then the people were mourning over this terrible plague. And one man brought a woman into the camp, one of the, the heathen women, and flaunted her, and he went inside the tent, and everybody knew what was going on, and there was one man, Aaron's grandson, his name was Phineas, and he grabbed a javelin, and he went right in after him, and the Bible says that he took the javelin, and he, with one thrust, pierced and killed both of them, and God said, that man understands my wrath. That man understands my jealousy. That, that man, he basically lifted up Aaron's grandson. And I just think it's very noteworthy for all of us as God's people to put our utmost priority to living a pure and holy life because God's uh, Heart has not changed. Neither let us be idolaters, neither let us commit fornication. So idolatry and adultery are named in verses 7 and 8. Verses, verses 9 and 10 kind of go together, but uh, for the sake of the text, let's just read verse 9. It says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So we have... We have probably a reference to Numbers 21, where it says the soul of the people were dis was discouraged by the way. Uh, did you ever get discouraged because of the way? The way's hard. Or the things around me just are not going well. And here's what they did. In Numbers 21, they came to Moses and they spoke against him. And they spoke against God, and they said, you brought us here to die. We don't have food. We don't have water. This manna, I hate it. My soul loathes it. And in the middle of that, God sent fiery snakes, serpents, 
and many died. And that's where we have the beautiful picture of Moses interceding for the people. And that's probably what it's referring to, the destroyed of, the destroyed of, uh, of, of serpents. But Moses, Moses took up the brazen serpent and he put it in the middle of the camp and he said, anybody that wants to come, just look at the serpent, you'll be healed. And it took an element of faith to do that. But I see faith and I see grace and I see forgiveness uh, portrayed. But in the middle of a tempting Christ, they were so discouraged, they started speaking out against Moses and against God. Why did you bring us here? Verse 10. So now we saw, don't be, a, an, a, a, don't be a, idolaters, don't be fornicators, don't tempt Christ. And here we come to the, the verse, don't grumble. In other words, neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Some did, and they were destroyed of this destroyer. I'm going to come back to that point. Let's just finish up the text. I want to do two, just a few more verses. Verses, verse 11 says, Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And I think that simply means now that all happened, and they're examples for those of us that are living in the last days. So we do well to read this account, understand it, understand the dynamics of it, and take heed. Verse 12, wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I was reminded of a couple that was at a very dangerous uh, water crossing. I think it was some kind of rapidly flowing creek or something, and there was a, a, a very slippery log that was set across. And they were inching their way across slowly, 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 and they safely got across. And the husband said to his wife, he said, were you afraid? She said, was I afraid? Yes, I was afraid. But she said, it was my fear that kept me safe. My, cautious, my, my fear led to cautiousness, and that's why I was safe. In other words, if you would have went across that log haphazardly, you would have surely slipped and fell. And I thought, that is a good illustration for us. And I think that's what the text means. I think it means, take heed. If you think you stand, if you think, you might fall. I remember hearing somebody say in regards to another one's fall, how could they do it? How? I would suggest that every one of us is just maybe two or three choices away from a terrible tragedy. And I think it's, this text tells me to beware, take heed in so many ways. Because God was not pleased with so many of them. I wish it would say just a few, but so many God was not pleased with. So I think we should, <coughs> we should be very, very uh, on guard. In verse 13, it's a beautiful text that I'm going to close with. Uh, through this text, it says, There hath no temptation taken you, such as come unto man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What a beautiful verse. What assurance. And I think in that, in that verse, uh, we can just uh, see that powerful truth that God is faithful, and he will always, always make a way of escape that we can bear it. So none of, not one of us can ever say, I just couldn't resist. Never. God always holds a way of escape before every person that is tempted, according to this text. That's a beautiful truth. So let's come back to the, the point, the fourth, neither. Neither murmur. So as we wrap up, I want to talk about 
grumbling, gratitude, and grace. The book of Numbers is sometimes called the book of murmurings. I think I heard that before, but I was reminded of it again in my study. The book of murmurings. Interesting. So, Numbers 11, verse 1, it says, The people complained, and it displeased the Lord, and the anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned and consumed those on the outskirts of the camp. Later in Numbers 11, the same chapter, I mean, you talk about slow learners, they're saying, who's going to give us flesh to eat? We want food. We want fried chicken. Or in this case, it was quail. They said, I want quail. And God said, okay, I'll give you quail. And you can eat quail and quail and quail and more quail. Not two days, not five days, not 10 days, not 20 days, but a month, quail. And they said, okay, we'll eat quail. And after 30 days, it said it came out of their nostrils and they loathed it. And I don't know what all of that means, but I know what they really wanted. They got it. And then at one point it says, while it was still in their teeth, God came. While that quail was still in their teeth, God came. And and to me, I I just want to, I'm highlighting murmuring. I'm highlighting grumbling. I'm highlighting complaining. In Numbers 14, verse 2, it says the children of Israel numbered, uh, yeah, murmured against Moses and Aaron. And they said, I would to God we would have died in Egypt, maybe in the wilderness. Hey, let's return. Let's go back. Let's get a captain. Who could we appoint as a captain? And that's what they wanted to do. And that's when Joshua stood up and said his piece. And that's when Caleb stood up. And at the end of that verse, in that chapter, God said, Caleb had or has a different spirit. And that's what I want to highlight as we close, a different spirit. I see that murmuring and I see that complaining tendency of humanity, even God's people, so prevalent in my own life. And there is, I believe, the best way to combat the grumbling is with Gratitude. It's kind of like the woman that made a choice. She said, when those days come where anxiety comes so strong, I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to say, I'm blessed. Gratitude. Somehow, by God's grace, we can choose gratitude over grumbling. I'm going to suggest we see this different spirit in a few other people than Joshua and Caleb. I'm going to suggest we see it in Job. Remember Job? He was a man that lost basically everything in a moment. All his possessions. He's a wealthy man. His, all his children. And he's sitting in the dust. And even his wife is saying, Husband, Job, curse God and die. And he said, You're speaking like a foolish woman. And you know what he said? A beautiful, grand text in Job 1.21. He said, Yeah, I didn't bring nothing into the world. I didn't take nothing out. I won't take nothing out. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a different spirit. That's the spirit I want. That's the spirit you want. Joseph, sold into slavery. I don't know if I could handle test one. Sold into slavery. Not only that, falsely accused, innocent, pure man, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and there forgotten. But he prospered. He prospered in prison. And God was with him, the Bible says, 
fast forward, Genesis 50, verse 20. His brothers come back, and you know, after the reunion and after all the story, he says an amazing statement. He says, God mend it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Somehow, somehow he found the grace to, to portray a different spirit through prison, through slavery, through you name it, and he prospered. Jehoshaphat, a forgotten hero, he had it. Watch with me a few of the neighboring uh, armies allied together and say, we're going to take them out. And they did, and they came. A friend of Jehoshaphat came and said, Jehoshaphat, they're coming. We have no chance. Jehoshaphat said this. He said, here's what we do. Second Chronicles 20, verse 21. Appoint singers. This is an army. Appoint singers to praise the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And they went out, the army went out to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. That's all they did. And the Lord sent ambushments against the enemies. I wonder if sometime we should read Jehoshaphat a bit more and combat whatever is coming with a praise the Lord, his mercy endures forever. I wonder if a few ambushments might come from an unseen force and some of our uh, enemies that we grumble about uh, will be gone. I think Paul and Silas had it too. I think they had a different spirit. I, they were another group of men that were preaching the word, being faithful in their in kingdom work. And one day they did something that got the community a little upset and they were thrown into prison and there they sat in prison after being beaten. So they were in prison, beaten, bruised, battered. And at midnight of all times, they just started singing. And you know the story. The story ends with a Philippian church being born. And to me, that is a different spirit. And I want it. And you want it too. We can have it. How is it possible? One word. And it's called grace. I don't think it's possible for you. I don't think it's possible for me to move from grumbling to gratitude without grace. And I just want to highlight God's grace. God's grace is something that I don't think I will ever comprehend. I don't think you will ever comprehend. I don't know that ever a man will comprehend the grace of God. God's grace is unmerited favor. It is favor that we do not deserve. And it, yes, saves us, but I believe that grace also enables us to, in other words, it's the power of God to do the will of God in every situation we face. That's grace. The will of God. Can we do it? 1 Thessalonians 5. Thank you, Brother Ed. In everything give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Ah, gratitude and being thankful places me in the center of God's will. That's how I interpret it. I think it says this is the will of God concerning you, so I start giving thanks in everything. I'm in the center of God's will. Conversely, if I start grumbling and I start complaining, is it fair to say that I have stepped right outside of God's will concerning, God's perfect will concerning me? Give thanks in everything, not for everything. 
I don't think I am going to say, thank you for a death or thank you for a sickness. I'm not even going to say thank you for the COVID-19 at this point anyway. But in everything, not for everything, in everything, somehow, like Job did, somehow, like Joseph did, somehow, like Jehoshaphat did, somehow, like Paul and Silas did, in everything, give thanks. And that takes grace. The last scripture I would like to just look at is Psalm 103. If there's a crown of grace in the Old Testament, I think I found it in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It, it is almost like the psalmist is saying, Okay, bless the Lord. And he's not talking to the church. He's not talking to his neighbor. He's talking to his, himself. You ever talk to yourself? Oh, my soul. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. So apparently his soul was not feeling like blessing the Lord. So he started talking to his soul and said, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. And that's, I just see gratitude. I see, I see a man that just wants to praise God. Verse 2, it says, same thing, repeated. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Benefits. So, do, you ever, do, you ever, do you ever have a day where you don't feel very <laughs> benefited? That your challenges outweigh the benefits? There's another psalm at 68 verse 19 that says, uh, God daily loads us with benefits. And here he's talking to himself in Psalm 103 verse Two, just don't forget all his benefits. Uh, and what I'm trying to highlight is grace. I see grace, but it gets better. Look at verse 3. Here's the specifics of grace. And the first one is the forgiveness of sin. Who forgives all thine iniquities. Forgives all thine iniquities. Ah, join with me in thinking with the uh, author my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Forgiveness of sin. I would almost challenge you or encourage you to walk back through a six month or a year or two years or five years and just look at all your sins. But don't do it. You'll, you'll get to, it'll take you too long and it'll discourage you. But they're gone. They're gone. That's grace. Forgiveness of sins is grace. And sometimes I got to stop and say, I'm forgiven. You know what the enemy does? The enemy takes everything you did and flaunts it and haunts you. God does not flaunt it. God does not haunt you. The enemy is the, does the accusing. But if we've come to Christ and believed in the blood, his, his, his blood, believe it. He forgives all our iniquities. If you drop down to verse 10, he doesn't deal with us after our sins. If he would, none of us would be here. Nobody would be listening in. Nobody would be watching. If he would deal with us according to our sins, nobody would be here. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't reward us after our iniquities. That's grace. I'm, I'm encouraging us as a church to see grace, to see the God of grace. He is so good. He is so gracious. The forgiveness of sins. 
In the same verse, he talks about healing, heal of all thy diseases. And if we would know how many times we were healed, I don't think we could, I think our lists would get too long. But the, the, the truth of it is, we're not even aware of all the healings that took place in our bodies day by day. Yes, there are times where God allows sicknesses and infirmities. We see that in the Bible. We see that in Paul. He had some, apparently some infirmity. But we don't, we don't adhere or preach a health and wealth gospel that if you don't have perfect health, you don't have faith. Otherwise, nobody gets the glory. But the healing that God gives so many times when we're even unaware of it is so marvelous. It's so uh, grand that it, it, it should cause us to well, our hearts to well up and worship an attitude and gratitude because of God's grace and not only forgiveness of sins but also healing. We know the healer. Look at verse 4. He redeems thy life from destruction. The, the God of grace took my life and your life and took, took us out of a horrible pit. Uh, David says, is it, Psalm, is it Psalm, I'm not sure which Psalm it is, but he took us out of the marvel, a horrible pit. So we see that, that God redeems his people, and that's grace. And then I don't know if I can even handle the rest of verse 4. It says he crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. You talk about a God of grace. You talk about a people that don't deserve even a home in heaven with him. But we, what we deserve... He holds it back, but he gives grace. He crowns us with loving kindness, tender mercies. Uh, I just want to say praise God, the God of grace. And I am convinced that every person that gets a hold of the grace of God and focuses on the grace of God will be able to, in any situation, maybe even whistle a tune, sing a song, and maybe even if you are in Home Depot and wearing a mask. You can whistle a tune. Try it. Even behind a mask that you don't, maybe don't want to wear. I am convinced that uh, a gratitude and grace is going to equal uh, a worship experience in some way, shape, or form. So my prayer is that this uh, exhortation on grumbling and gratitude and grace will encourage God's people to be as grateful as to be grateful as we experience grace and not grumble along the way. The wilderness way. You know, God's people have often suffered, even under the hand of governments that caused them to exile, caused them to do far, far, far worse things than we're experiencing right now. Read the history books, read the martyrs, read them as they sing, as they give their life. life. So sing, whistle, tune. You might... Uh, find reasons uh, for murmuring to grow strangely dim. I'm convinced of it. You get a hold of God's grace and gratitude, the grumbling will grow strangely dim. Uh, I think we'll have a strong desire for the better country. That is a heavenly country where God is not ashamed to be called their God and that he prepared a place for them. And in so doing, we will do exactly what we're told to in Philippians where we're told not to murmur. Don't do things with disputings and murmurings so we can be blameless, harmless sons of God without rebuke in a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights. So we're kind of back to the shining as lights in, uh, in a dark world. So grumbling, God hates it. He's not well pleased. Gratitude, God loves it. God deserves it. 
and grace. God gives it. May God bless each one of us as we focus on gratitude and grace and watch the grumbling grow strangely dim. God bless you. Have a wonderful day serving Jesus.